I invite you to be seated and also to pray with me this morning. Loving God, we give you thanks that you made all around us and that you made us in your image. Having heard your word read, let us continue to hear a word from you this morning and that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God. Amen. Amen. Well, so this story, uh, this sermon series, is inspired by uh, a phenomenon that I imagine many of you get, but most of you make it harder for me to experience. And what I mean by that is that you, if you have children and your children are learning about the Bible and start to ask questions, you have a gift when they ask you a question. And that is to pawn that question off on me. Right? So when they ask you some theological question about how did we get here or a mystery, like what does it mean for Jesus to be incarnate or the Virgin Mary, any of those questions get asked, that's a good question. Let's ask pastor about it, right? And so any given Sunday, I could have a child come up to me encouraged by their parents, and they have a deeply theological question for me that day. And the parent kind of nudges them up and says, go ahead, go ahead, ask them. And then all of a sudden, with these cute little eyes, they look up at me and they say, at school I learned about evolution. But in the Bible, we learn about Adam and Eve. I don't understand. And they look at you wide open, just waiting for you. And it might be that, it might be like any number of questions, right? I just say that because that's the text for this Sunday. And, and then I sit there and I say, well, shoots, how am I going to answer this? Because clearly they are tell, come and sending them to me to get the answers on life's mysteries. But you know what I often say? in response, and it is terribly disappointing to you parents, so if you already have that question that you're like, you should ask Pastor Brian, I say, that's a great question. That's a great question. Because for me, one of the most important things that they can take away from my conversation is that their curiosity and their questions are valuable as they approach the scriptures. Because all too often, I think, sometimes in Christian tradition, we tell our kids and ourselves that you have to, like, take off your thinking cap to read the scripture, right? And I, and I say that because we learn about children's Bible stories when we're young, or if you grew up in the church, that is. I didn't grow up in the church, so I didn't learn those. But you, you learn about them, and you're told that this is the meaning of Adam and Eve. This is the meaning of the story of the flood. This is the meaning of all of the stories of the Old Testament. And then there comes a point later in your life when you go back to that text, and you start reading its pages, and you think to yourself, but I remember reading this in, in Sunday school, and I don't remember, wait, this doesn't make sense. And you have these questions, and you don't know how to resolve them. And that's why we are in the midst of this series, Old Stories Made New. Because when we approach some of the stories that we've learned in the past, we approach them, and they bring in all sorts of questions, to which our only answer to them sometimes is, Let's ask Pastor Brian, right? And we're gonna look at some of the potentially more problematic ones and also some of the most misunderstood scriptures, I think, within popular 
Christendom, or popular media, that is, in general. And so today we have a quintessential scripture as the creation story. And one of the things that I encounter with this is that, you know, usually, you know, people think of the story of creation as a story of creation. But one of the things that I point out to uh, anyone when we approach the Bible, and perhaps this is a question that you didn't even know existed because you think of the story of creation as just that the story of creation, only to open the book of Genesis and find two stories of creation. How many of you knew that there's two stories of creation? Yeah, there's two. If you didn't know that, it's a fun new fact. I love fun new facts, and I love working with people about fun new facts, and so Stephanie, our office admin, I'm going to throw her on the spot, uh, has learned all sorts of fun new Bible and theology facts just from our co-working space that we have in our office. And so one of the fun facts is that there is two stories of creation. Another fun fact is that there were two important trees in the Garden of Eden, right? And we can add on to it fun fact after fun fact after fun fact. But the reality is, is that what we were taught at one point in our life, a simple story of Adam and Eve, gets a little bit more complex as we get older. Because this week I had read children's stories from the Bible, and I found Adam and Eve, and I found the narrative that I heard, at least when I became a Christian. It's that God for so loved the world, God, God made everything, but the pinnacle of all of creation was the humans that God had made. And God had made them to be dominions over everything that God had given. And God said, you can eat of anything and you can have it for your pleasure, except for one thing, the tree that stood in the middle. And then, of course, what happened? What happened was that Satan, disguised as a snake, came and slithered their way and talked to the woman and said, but did God really say you shouldn't eat it? And the snake was cunning, and the snake convinced the woman to eat of the apple, which, by the way, is not an apple, another fun fact, but to eat of the apple, and she eats of the apple. And then she, too, takes the apple and then goes and convinces Adam to eat of it and they eat of the apple, and then they find themselves ashamed because they're naked, and they recognize it. And then they find themselves afraid of God and hiding from God, and then God meets them, and God says to them, what did you do? And then God banishes them, and they experience the pain of childbirth, and then also of death and punishment, and sin came into the world, and for which has never gone away. And it was the original sin that we had experienced as humanity. And that's the Bible story that has been told and retold and told again. And yet within that, there is just so many questions, right? (laughs) And, And if you have questions about that, that is fine. Because the reality is that, did you know, most of what I said is not in the Bible story that I just gave to you. Did you know? And yet it's the story that we tell and retell. For just an example, the apple is not an apple, it's a fruit. One of the fruits that we're not wanting to eat. The snake actually has nothing to do with Satan, did you know? The snake was a cunning creature, a serpent, almost like a legal advocate that was trying to tell us about something. 
Similarly, original sin is an interpretation upon this entire text that for a thousand years wasn't understood. Well, not by a thousand years. It wasn't understood until some of the early Christians came by and started to narrate that. That for most of the Jewish community, even still to this day, that experience of eating the forbidden fruit was a misstep. The way things came to be. It wasn't a problem that was instituted, and now all the rest of humanity, it was a story of how, well, we had to work the fields and difficulty with childbirth. And so if you ask yourself some questions about the text, and you wonder, how am I to explain this? You find yourself in good company. The most prominent, though, for me, is when you talk to people about the story of creation and then the conflict that it arises with what we learn in schools. I remember that I grew up not as a Christian. I've told many of you, I used to believe that faith was something that people made up to explain how we got here and to explain where we were going when we were dying. And the story of creation was just that, the story of how we got here. And I had a hard time believing it because I had learned about so much more from my science books and from the teachers about evolution and Darwinism and then the things were millions of years old, not thousands of years old. And no, in fact, we didn't walk with dinosaurs according to scientists. And then as I became a Christian and I started to read more, I literally had friends that gave me a VHS, because they were still around when I was in high school, gave me a series of VHS tapes, and they were of a scientist, I forget his name, that was disproving all that I was learning in school. Everything that I was learning in school, he was debunking and backing it up with what? The Bible, right? So, for example, did you know that there was a term in the Old Testament called the firmament? which is the water above the skies. And he said, at, at one point in human history, there was ice around the, the sky, and it had started to melt at one point because God made it melt, which is why it flooded. But pre that, we lived in like this refrigerator, so things lasted longer, right? And that things would grow bigger, and how you could get to be 800 years. I mean, and he had everything down. So that's why, you know, when we carbon date things, it was millions of years because there was this like, it was different, right? And so literally I had learned that everything I had learned in school was wrong. And that I had to then believe in what? The Bible. I had to believe the Bible and the words it said. And so for some of you, you might have learned about this at some point, or you have at least, you know, kind of moved beyond it. Or for some of you, as I had a conversation with someone this week, you never even thought about it. You never even thought about the potential problematic differentiation of evolution and the story of Adam and Eve. And you start to think, well, why was there just two then if, you know, there was many of us and we were flourishing in creation? And one of the things that we are going to get to in this text or throughout this series is it's a common theme in many of our stories. And it was the shocking news of the most dear, one of the most dear professors that I had in undergraduate school. He was like Santa Claus. His name was Gerald Wilson. He was a Hebrew poetic and wisdom literature guy. He was teaching Exodus and Deuteronomy. I went to a, a Christian school where one of the classes you had to take your freshman year was Exodus and Deuteronomy. And I sat in his class and we started to learn about Exodus and Deuteronomy, but also about the entire Pentateuch, which is Genesis first. 
And he said to our class that the story of creation belongs to a genre of scripture known as myth. And I was furious, right? I learned from all of my friends in school or in, and like in the youth group that it was not myth. It was actual evidence-based reality that the Bible was telling the way it had been. And so I threw down my chair and I said, what are you talking about? Because I was just so upset. And then I kept listening and I said, well, maybe he knows something. And then the more I listened, the more he started to ask some of the questions I mentioned. Like, they never talked about two different accounts of creation when they were saying it was all fact-based. And that, in fact, in the first account, God made everything in seven days, right? Seven days. And there was an order to everything that God had made. But in the second count of creation, as you see, that the earth hadn't brought forth greenery until God went to create humankind. That at that point was when it was. So it didn't align with the seven days because in the second account of creation, it was different. And I started to experience the discrepancies. And more than that, that professor encouraged me to read the Hebrew. And my eyes began to open not just about the scripture itself and I knew what it said, but about the beauty that was there. Because no one ever told me when I was an early Christian in my youth that the Hebrew Bible begins in Genesis not with a historical account of how things came to be, but with some of the most meticulously crafted poetry that is within all of our sacred texts that the language that was used is used with unique, intricate intention, and that they write it as a poem, especially this second account of creation. And it wasn't supposed to be of how things came to be as much as it was supposed to draw us into something, some way of seeing the world differently. And you know, one of the things that uh, I kind of spurred on is that uh, we have in our tradition of the Christian faith a divide between us and science. Did you know that there is a divide in our tradition? Uh, in fact, so much so that I met with a grad student from HPU just this week because she's doing a research paper on sustainability and she wanted to know about faith organizations' perspective on sustainability and care for the environment. And one of the assumptions that she was operating out of is that the majority of Christians have this disbelief in science. And that is not a new thing. In fact, circa 1927, there was a trial within the United States called the Scopes Trial. Anyone heard of it? Scopes Trial? Essentially what had happened was there was a teacher in Tennessee that decided that he was going to teach evolution to the kids. And at the same time, the state decided to ban the teaching of evolution within the public school system. And it became a national thing. You know, people were dressing up like monkeys, mocking the people that believed in science and evolution. And, and it was this kind of fundamentalist Christians on the other side, you know, saying that these people were crazy. And then it was this like, science versus faith moments in our history. And ultimately what happened? Ultimately what happened is, is that the fundamentalist Christians won the day 
and the science had to go their own way. And it has been something that has been in, that we have not publicly reconciled that as the church. We have not found a way. So science community still does not think that their work necessarily is congruent with faith. Even though many of us think of ourselves as rational people. And when I say to you that your faith of believing that evolution might have happened and the Bible is still faithful, that's a faithful Christian belief, right? But when I met with that grad student from HPU, that was new information at some level. It was new information that there are Christians that don't have this disconnect, that we still live in a society where that is kind of part of the world we live in. And our kids might ask you, mom, dad, auntie, uncle, why does the Bible say that there were two when there were many? And you might say to them, that's a good question. And they are right. Remember what I said was the most important thing? Affirm the question. But now let's peel back this story just a little bit with less about how things came to be. And in fact, what is the purpose it serves within our faith? We love to be a people that puts things into boxes, right? The way you should do it, the way you shouldn't do it. This is the path, this isn't the path. This is right, this is wrong. If there's anything that I take away from this initial story of how things came to be, was that God's intention for creation was to be a partner with us. In fact, the one thing, the one thing that God did not want for humanity was what? To eat of the tree of knowledge. Not so we wouldn't become wise, because I think that God feared the one thing that happens over and over again in our everyday lives. It's the kind of subtle way of going about our lives as if we don't need God. It's the subtle way of believing that we in ourselves can determine what is right and what is wrong because we know. And if you look at so many of the ways in which humanity has failed throughout history, it's in this concrete belief that I am right, and that person is wrong, or that community. Crusades are built upon it. Genocides are there within it. God wanted us from the beginning to be in relationship with God, for God to be a partner with us, to help us discern a way forward for the future. And if we ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, of good and bad, we wouldn't need God's guidance and discernment in our lives. And so the fall wasn't really so much of a fall, it's what we do when we gather around the table and I tell the story of us as humanity, as God's people, where God made us, but yet we think we don't need God. 
And then God shows God's love and provides a way, and then we don't think we need God, and that God shows us God's love and provides a way. That's been the intention since the beginning and the account of the second story of creation, that God's intention for us as created beings, whatever that means, however the Big Bang or whatever it works, that that doesn't matter because what matters is that we don't make the mistake of humanity from the beginning, which was to believe that we didn't need God for the guidance of our lives. And that, that has tangible, everyday, practical implications, doesn't it? And so when our kids say to us, what, what do you do about that? I often say, you know, I don't know. Some of those things are mysteries, and as much as I want to tell you I know the Bible, I certainly don't know how things came to be. But you know what I do know about that text? Is that Adam and Eve made a mistake, and that was to think that they didn't need God that God wants to be our partner in discerning because we don't always know what's right and what's wrong. And we don't always know the next steps. So we should seek guidance with our Christian community. We should prayerfully discern. We should invite God and our faith community into the decisions that we make and the future that we have. And that's something that our keiki can understand. That's something that we can take away day by day. So I hope a takeaway for you. And the, and the thing is about this text is it's poetry. There's so many beautiful takeaways. This is just mine on this particular day. So when someone asks you about your faith and about the old stories of Adam and Eve, you can say, well, you know, one thing I took away, my pastor just talked about it, and the story is about following God's guidance. How simple is that? We make it so much more complex when we think that the Bible has to be the historical account of all that has happened. But throughout the history of the Bible, that has not been the way it's been used. Different places are used differently, and for this, the primary purpose of the story, the second count of creation, has been to inspire faithful living, not to argue with evolutionists. To inspire faithful living that we need God to help guide us. And we need each other, our partners, that's known as humanity, to do it as well. I invite you to pray with me. Holy and gracious God, we give you thanks for the stories of old, for complicated and convoluted, and yet somehow simple. As we go throughout our series of uh, the old stories made new, inspire us new ways of looking at these stories to allow us to communicate a message of hope, a message of your love amidst what can otherwise be problematic or complex. And most of all, help remind us today that we are always and forever have been in desperate need of your guidance in our lives. So help us on that journey. 
Let us not eat of the fruit. Let us trust in your steadfast hand and the community of faith that you put around us. Amen.